Today we turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. You'll find an outline if you'd like to follow along on page 4 in your bulletin. You'll also see on page 5 some other readings from the Westminster Confession and Larger Catechism. We welcome those visiting with us today. We continue to go through the Gospel of Matthew, in particular the Sermon on the Mount, picking up today in Matthew 5. Hear now the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. What's the big idea of the Christian life? Someone asked R.C. Sproul that question once. Isn't that a good question? I think he wrote a book. Now that's a good question. What's the big idea? I love what Sproul said. The overarching ultimate goal of the Christian life is Coram Deo. Doesn't mean you have to know Latin. I don't know Latin. But that phrase means what? Before the face of God. In the presence of God. That everything we do is life lived before God. That there are no little secret compartments. There are no silos where you've got your business life, your family life, your church life, your friend's life, and you kind of do little things with different people and act different ways at different times. It's an integrity. It's a grace-given life of gratitude lived by the power of the Spirit. Jesus is teaching us that in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching that he has come to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, not yet consummated, but yes, already here through his first coming. That we now begin to live the life that is reflective of the perfect ethic of the kingdom of heaven. We're not there yet, but God is working in us to do and to will according to his good pleasure. As we look at these passages today, We want to explain them to our kids in the right way. There's no way that we can fully talk about all of this. And we want to be grounded in the grace of Jesus, remembering, as the Westminster says, all sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, but some sins are more heinous than others. That's important in this discussion. Being angry in your heart is not the same in degree of sin as flat-out blood murder of your brother. 
lusting in your heart is not the same, even though it's the same seed, as outright physical adultery. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. But some sins are more heinous than others. And the Spirit is at work in us and through us as we look, first of all, at sexuality, an overview of it before the fall. Sometimes maybe you've heard people say, well, Christians are just opposed to everything. They're negative on sexuality. And I want you to see biblically, as we look at this, that that's not the case. That God created Adam and Eve in his own image. Two sexes, male and female. That everything was good in God's creation. That God brought the first man to the first woman. He walked her down the aisle, as it were, as the first marriage took place. A man will leave his father and mother, be joined fast to his wife. The two become what? One flesh. God made men and women to be attracted to each other, to enter into the covenant of marriage together. Kids, it's good that your mom and dad are attracted to each other physically, emotionally, spiritually, in intimacy, in all these dimensions. That's a good thing. It's good when you see mom and dad hug each other and give each other a kiss and show you that they have that affection. In marriage, loved ones, we have the closest possible union among humans. One man, one woman, body and soul. Sexuality was perfect before the fall. Perfect harmony. Two lovers who are one flesh. The Bible's not negative about sexual desire. As one man says, the Bible starts, Genesis 2, before the fall, with a naked man singing rapturous love songs to a naked woman in the presence of God. You read that at the end of Genesis 2. Adam sings a love poem to his wife. Christians do not have a negative view of sex. Within the covenant of marriage, between one man and one woman, sexuality is a wonderful gift of God. It's a covenant. A relationship is there. It's loving and intimate, and it's legal, and it's binding, and it's enduring. The Bible says sex in this context is not only procreational, not only, Lord willing, our children coming from this union, but also relational and recreational. Sex in marriage is good. It's not the result of sin or the fall. It is to be enjoyed by husband and wife. As one Presbyterian pastor says, the sexual ethics prescribed in God's word is never a single relatively minor issue that Christians can agree to disagree on. This is not debatable, loved ones. The boundaries God has placed around sexuality and gender. Kids, boys, God made you to be a boy. That's who you are in the image of God. Girls, God made you to be a girl. That's who you are are in the image of God. The boundaries God placed around sexuality and gender are expressions of God's goodness, of God's holiness, So they reveal something of how God designed creation to flourish. 
When those boundaries are rejected, mankind necessarily rejects God. That's how crucial this is. To tear sex from its context in the covenant of marriage is to shatter its meaning, to rob it of its value. And we see that, secondly, in what happened after the fall. Children, God made a boy and a girl to want to have a loving relationship together in marriage. Sex is for love, for pleasure, and for joy. In order to protect that joy, God gave the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. What does that mean? Simply, adultery is marital infidelity. Sexual intercourse breaking the bonds of the marriage covenant. An attempt to enjoy the pleasure of the covenant of marriage without the responsibility of that covenant. And Jesus teaches here that it's far-reaching. That breaking the seventh commandment is grasping, as Kevin DeYoung says, with your eyes, your heart, your imagination, or your body, what God has said no to. The seventh commandment and God's word from beginning to end forbids any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. We were built for this intimacy, this connection with a spouse, but now it's corrupt and twisted by the fall. Even the word adultery is not used much anymore. They use the word often in our culture what? Affair. That was an old show, wasn't it? A current affair. Affair. People say, well, I want to be happy. My spouse doesn't make me happy. I need to find happiness elsewhere. The sexual desires given to humans as a gift of God to enjoy are distorted and run out of control. So what happens is sex is not pursued in the covenant of marriage anymore, but in, as one writer says, a consumer relationship. Like buying a product. So I want something that will fit my needs, Menards has a better deal on flowers than Home Depot. See a Home Depot, I'm out of here. You were great until I found a better deal elsewhere. We do that with products, but we must not do that in marriage or in sexuality or in any relationship. To have physical union without whole life union, the covenant of marriage means someone is taking, not giving. So by a result of the fall, men and women who are all born dead in sin through the sin of Adam, our federal head, we by nature want to take, devour, use, and discard people in sexuality and across the board. This starts right after the fall. Lamech did it. He took two wives. Polygamy is always sinful. It's always against God's law. It was never permissible according to what God said. You see it in Solomon throughout the Old Testament. Ancient paganism is filled with fornication, prostitution. The ancient Roman world was a pornographic world with pictures and statues and brothels. In ancient Rome, sex was not about intimacy or love, not even about attraction, as one person says. In ancient Rome, it was about dominion and manipulation. And it was 
often the case that a man's true love in that culture was another man. A woman was just there for him to procreate. What about today? In the modern view, which I hope you've seen, yes, there are some unique twists, but some of this stuff has been going on since Lamech, Genesis 4. But in the modern view, the individual determines who they are. The individual determines what they are in terms of sexuality, gender, and the like. What we're seeing is Romans 1. God himself gives them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanging natural relations for men. Men giving up natural relations with women, consumed in passion for each other. They're not acknowledging God, Romans says. God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Not only to practice them, but to give approval to those who practice them. So in our world, kids, you need to know, the fallen world makes sexual immorality look like normal. It's all twisted since the fall. The applications of the seventh commandment include fornication, cohabiting, living together before marriage, sexual relations outside or before marriage. It includes dating or marrying a non-Christian. It includes homosexuality, which is ruled out because God has said what marriage and sexuality is to be. If you're struggling in any of these areas, please come and talk to me or the elders or someone in your life that is trusted. Come, we want to bring the word of God to you. It is not unloving to expose homosexual desires and actions as sin. Sin is a condition and an action. But certain Christians speak of homosexuality in a way that they demonize. They heap abuse, which is not the way of Christ. Burke Parsons says this, I want to hate my sins more than I hate the sins of others who sin differently than I do. That takes the work of God's Spirit. Prostitution, rape, incest, pedophilia, sexual violence. The seventh commandment covers all of these wicked sins, and it covers unbiblical divorce. Jesus mentions that here. We have many different marriages and single people and situations in our church and have for years. Some are divorced. Some are divorced and remarried. Some are never married. Some are married for 50 years. Some have children. Some don't have children. Some don't want to be married. Some want to be married. Some want to have more children. It's all across the board. And pastorally, there's no way that we could address every situation when it comes to divorce that this text brings out. Jesus talks about it more in Matthew 19. Lord willing, we'll be there someday. For today, know the context. Matthew 5, 31 comes from Deuteronomy 24. A man finds something about his wife that he doesn't like. He gives her a certificate of divorce. She remarries. 
The second husband divorces her. And then Deuteronomy 24, when this happens, the first husband can't remarry her. There's a lot going on here. The biblical regulation of divorce was started during the days of Moses when hard-hearted men divorced their wives for whatever reason. They weren't attracted anymore to them. They burned their dinner. The Pharisees talk about this. It was because of the hardness of people's hearts that divorce was given permission in the Old Testament to protect the woman. Because in that Old Testament culture, the woman had no rights. They had no provision to get divorced, only the man. And the Pharisees twisted this. They thought, well, how can I not commit adultery? Well, I'll divorce this woman. Then I'll do what I want with another woman. Then I'll remarry her. Or I'll divorce her. I'll sell her to someone else for 24 hours. I'll get some money for it, and then I'll get it back. This stuff was going on in the days of the Old Testament and the days of the Pharisees. What's the point? They were using the Bible for the wrong ends, to make excuses. Jesus says, don't just slide into divorce when struggles happen. For so many, divorce begins with a seed of dissatisfaction, a discontentment. My spouse is not as interesting as 10 years ago. He or she is not as good looking as 30 years ago. My spouse is not interested in pleasing me anymore. Maybe someone else is. Maybe this person that talks to me in such a kind way, a man or woman, can recharge me. There's excitement there. Loved ones, when things are tough in marriage, we forgive, we reconcile, we give grace, we remember the vows we made until death do us part. We don't go pondering divorce. We never throw that word out. Not before the kids, not before each other. We pray, God, keep it from my mind. What God has joined together, let no man separate. There's much more about divorce and remarriage. We don't have the time to get into it today. But Kevin DeYoung says this. Marriage is the sacred union between one man and one woman. God's intention is for marriage to last a lifetime. That's the vow you made. Secondly, he says, divorce is not always sinful. Third, divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus' words here in Matthew 5. Fourth, DeYoung says, divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7. In situations where divorce is permissible, remarriage is permissible. And there's all sorts of applications that come from this. All sorts of different situations. Hardness of heart, abuse, physical abuse and violence and applications from 1 Corinthians 7 that if you have experienced or have questions about, come and talk to us. The Pharisees were looking to get out of this. They were really looking to get out of what Jesus said about lust. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it was said... But I say to you, you Pharisees think you're good at avoiding adultery. You've got all these little loopholes. But I'm telling you, adultery is a matter of the heart. That the seed of adultery is lust in the heart. 
That this is not just a problem for men, but for men and women. That the fire within, the sinful nature, loves to sin. And sin loves to make sin look pleasurable, James 1, and desirable. Now, Jesus here is not forbidding to recognize beauty. The Bible recognizes beauty, doesn't it? It talks of Saul. It talks of Rachel. It speaks of their physical appearance. God created beauty. So recognizing beauty is not a sin. As one man says, we don't want to be holier than God. What is sin is lust. What's the word for lust? Verse 27. One scholar brings it out, and this shows how the New Testament ties these things together. The word for lust is very closely associated with words for greed and idolatry. Sin is connected. He says this, making a lot of money is not sinful, but greed is sinful. Greed is wanting money for selfish ends. Greed is addictive. You want more. You trample on people. You fantasize. How can I get more? Greed is looking to find satisfaction in money where satisfaction can really only be found in God. Lust does the same thing. It makes sex into an idol. It's greedy. It's using someone selfishly. It's addicting. It's filled with fantasies. It's looking to sexual pleasure to give what only God can give. It's utterly turned inward and selfish. It's craving what God has forbidden. And lust can apply to things beyond just sexuality. That's why it's similar to covetousness. Sexual lust is looking at someone, taking a mental snapshot, and imagining immorality. Sin is much deeper than we realize. Attitudes, longings, appetites. It is the sinful, lustful desire of the heart that leads to pornography and masturbation and self-pleasure and all manner of sin that goes with it. Remember, kids and mom and dad, sex is designed in marriage. It's not a consumer product. It's not for taking and discarding. It's for giving. And these forms of immorality that I mentioned are all about the self. Pornography involves idolatry, a divided heart. Secrecy, a divided life. Isolation with non-intimacy. It's not private. As one man says, those who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations of physical appearance and sexual fulfillment. Crushingly. Of what a person must look like and how they must perform. Many porn users experience a diminished tolerance for real-life relationships and how hard they are. They don't want to get into the messiness of it. It can keep some from wanting to get married. We need to wage war on this. That's the writer's point. It's not harmless. It'll destroy a person. Jesus says that very thing. It'll destroy a marriage, a family. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. 
It's the devil's work. Pornography is lust, murder, and lies. It's seeking to destroy the image of God in the man or woman, because it's both. It goes both ways. It's not just a one-sided thing. It's based on enslaving and dominating and discarding and using and sex trafficking and rape become more common as clicks are made on computers and money goes into those pockets. This is the devil's work. And Alistair Begg said it right. He says, I've never met a problem in adults with sexual perversion that was not rooted in that which started in early life. In all manner of things. Mom and dad, talk to your kids. Talk to us. Talk to a trusted Christian brother or sister or a trusted counselor. Don't hide this. Don't push it to the side. Don't think it's not happening. Don't think it could never happen to me or my family. We're good. Plead for God's grace. The sins of the seventh commandment reach to the heart. Sexual idolatry is found in other ways, though. It can be found in having the idea of a perfect family. One person brings this out. Thinking, if I've got the perfect spouse, kids, and house, then I'll be happy. That's a form of idolatry, because you make the family or your spouse into Jesus. Only Christ can satisfy. No one person can. When we put the weight on a person, we crush them. When we make any person or thing an idol, it disappoints. Only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ can give me joy and forgiveness. Sexual idolatry is found when we think, I won't be happy without it. Again, only Christ is the one we can say, I cannot have joy without him. How do you deal with this lust of the heart? Jesus says, you've got an eye, you cut it out. It's like an egg yolk. You throw it into the trash. You've got a hand, you cut it off. What's he saying? He's speaking here of sin as the fruit of being a sinner. He's using a metaphor. Sin is bound up with who we are. It's not out there that comes in here. It's in here. It's the enemy within He's saying this in hyperbole to get our attention. And cutting off these body parts means not living in lust. So how do you deal with it? The Pharisees had ways. They said, some of them, I've got to cover my eyes and I'm going to bounce into walls whenever I see someone I might be attracted to. They were called the bruised Pharisees. That's actually their name. So they were bloody and bruised. Yes, Job says make a covenant with your eyes, but it's a matter of the heart. It's not just an external thing. The Greeks tried to make it external. They said all women are objects of temptation. We men can't help ourselves. So much like the Muslim, the Greek would fully cover the woman head to toe, head, face, everything. And much like Islam, which does the same thing, Lust and rape is rampant. Adding the commandments of men to try to fix the problem of the heart, the lust of the heart, only increases lust, increases fornication. 
Some have said to deal with this problem, just get married. That'll fix it. That doesn't deal with the heart. That can bring fornication into the marriage. That can make a man or woman blame their spouse if they're struggling with sin. It goes both ways. The key is James 4. As long as our pride remains unbroken and God is opposed to the proud, the more we try to fix things ourselves with man-made rules, the more things will get worse. It's a heart problem. And Satan wants to attack us all here. In our sin, he wants people to either flaunt it, go and tell everyone about whatever you're doing, Romans 1, give approval to it, or hide it, or blame other people for your problem. He wants all those things to happen. And you see it happening all over the place. As long as we hammer away at others, we won't realize the problems in the heart, that we're all guilty of breaking all of God's commandments, and that the way to deal with lust, third, is the gospel and a new heart, sexuality and redemption. The gospel says come out of hiding. Take your sin, whatever it might be, in whatever form it is, and bring it to Jesus right now. Confess it before him. Say, Jesus, I have broken your law. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I'm bringing it out of the shadows. I'm not wanting to live a double life. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. In Christ, I have everything. My salvation does not depend on my mood, my works, my doubts. In Christ, I have everything. Christ is faithful to his adulterous bride. We are that adulterous bride, the church. We are transgressors of the seventh commandment. Jesus died for lustful adulterers. Jesus has not forsaken you. Jesus kept this law and achieved righteousness. That's why he came. Christian, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Repent. Like David in Psalm 51. And from the heart, we learn to die to lust and to grow in love. The opposite of lust is love. Lust uses people. Love serves people. And God sent Jesus not to just say, don't commit adultery, but that our hearts might be changed by the Holy Spirit. He wants to change you. As one man says, Christ cares about our sanctification more than we do, thankfully. In the new covenant by his blood, Jesus came to give you a new heart, a new mind. You can cut off your hand, you can gouge out your eye, and your heart can still be uncircumcised. Meaning, you can do all these external things, but if we don't repent of a proud, lustful heart, we won't be changed. In Christ's kingdom, God's people won't be so filled with lust that they will be living like this. That's his point. They won't be cutting off body parts because they have a new heart. How do we deal with lust? We remember that unrepentant lust leads to hell. Jesus said that. This is not a minor matter. Any form of sexual immorality points to hell. 
1 Corinthians 10, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Some of them did, referring to the Old Testament. 23,000 fell in a single day. Let no one who thinks he stands boast, lest he fall. Under the Old Testament civil law, adulterers were put to death. That law has been fulfilled in Christ. Now in the church, there is spiritual church discipline for these sins with the goal of repentance, the goal of restoration. God's holiness hasn't changed. Satan says, if you deal with this sin like Jesus says, you're done. You're going to lose everything. That's the nature of the bondage of sin. It can become all-consuming. But God's grace in Christ and by the Spirit says, say to God, I can't do it. I can't save myself. I know where I'm tempted. And ask God to help you by his Spirit to mortify. How do you deal with your lust? Mortification. So where are you tempted and how are you tempted? Practically. Mom and dad, just with your kids, don't have devices in their rooms at night. Software protection can be wise here. It's still a matter of the heart, yes. But we want to be wise and know if watching that movie or reading that book or listening to that show causes me to lust, I've got to turn away from it. I've got to die to it. I can't play around with it. If I'm looking at porn or tempted to look at porn, I've got to turn away from it. I've got to get help. I've got to get someone in my life to keep me accountable. Mortification. Jesus, help me to hate my sin. Help me to see the glory of Christ. Lead me not into temptation. And vivification. So mortifying is dying to sin. Where are you tempted? Where are those pockets in your life that we need to die to? Vivification is living to the Spirit. As one man said, the same thing was true with anger. Imagine yourself in the presence of God and his angels looking at another Christian lustfully. We can't imagine that, can we? That shows lustful thoughts don't belong in the kingdom of heaven. And that's the kingdom you live in now. Now you are seated, Ephesians 2, in Christ in the heavenly places. It doesn't work in the presence of God one day in heaven. It shouldn't work now, this man says. You're citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Lust is a spiritual problem. It requires a spiritual solution. 1 Timothy. The aim of our charge is what? Love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. How do we deal with lust? Clothing ourselves with the mind of Christ. Loving this person who's made in the image of God. This person you're tempted to lust after, this man or woman, that is someone's husband or wife or sister or brother or son or daughter made in God's image. How do I honor them and not use them and not discard them? When this happens, the church is a place of safety. 
We have new minds, the mind of Christ. We're not lusting after each other. We're loving each other. We're not using each other. This applies to how we dress. Modesty means, this author says, we don't dress, act, or speak in a way that will be seductive or try to cause lust or lure people to sin or cause envy. It applies to all of those areas. So it's a matter of the heart. Why am I dressing the way I'm dressing? Why am I wearing this? Why am I speaking this way? What's going on in my heart? Loved ones, the opposite extreme can be a problem. Someone can dress in a way to try to show off their spirituality. Head coverings, right? Can be done in a way to try to boast in that way. It's a matter of the heart. Why are you wearing and I, what we're wearing. In marriage, the blessing of sexuality is a wonderful gift of the Lord. Why is adultery forbidden in these other ways? Not because sex is bad, but because it's such a powerful force for good. Someone said it's like fire. It can warm, comfort, and purify. Or, if not handled with care, it can burn and destroy. Remember your covenant marriage vows. Those vows not only were made on the day you were married, they were made looking forward. In richness and in poverty, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. It sounds a lot like Heidelberg 27, the providence of God. I am promising by the grace of God to love you, to love my wife, whatever may come, whatever physically or emotionally or spiritually may happen, a commitment. In this covenant, love grows. In this zone of safety, we stop pretending and performing. We are committed to each other despite feelings, despite ups and downs. And sexuality is like superglue, one man said. It is properly used Sealing the bond of the covenant of marriage. Single people, pray today for grace for today. Don't think, well, how long until I can enjoy this gift? Don't, don't, don't be anxious about the future. Pray, God, help me today to pursue God-glorifying relationships right now, to look to Jesus. God will strengthen you in the temptation. For those who are married, Paul says, enjoy one another. The Proverbs say, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Paul says, the wife's body doesn't belong to the husband's, the husband uh, doesn't belong to herself, but to the husband. The husband's body doesn't belong to himself, but to the wife. You see how it goes both ways? First Corinthians 7. Husbands and wives offer themselves to each other in what the Puritans called the mutual communication of bodies. Enjoy. Don't deprive each other. When that happens, it's often a sign of spiritual problems. Find help if help is needed. God's a God of grace. Remember as we age, sometimes age, infirmities, illness, can have an enormous impact with this. 
And remember that sexuality was given to point to something tremendous, to our union with Christ. We will be well married and single well when Jesus is the spouse of our soul, when his love is the most important in our life. This intimacy we want with each other and that by God's grace we experience with each other is not perfect. And the church is longing for this intimacy with God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what covenant marriage sexuality points to. In marriage, in heaven, there will be no human marriage because we will be perfectly married to Christ, our bridegroom. One person says the greatest thrill of sexuality in marriage is nothing compared with what we will experience in communion with God forever. That's the fellowship with the Lord that we long for. Single and married. Our citizenship is in heaven. Sex inside the covenant of marriage points you to heaven. And in Revelation 21, it speaks of the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven, how? As a bride, adorned and prepared for her husband. When the bride walks the aisle in the marriage, she's like the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven to meet her husband. That's a tremendous picture. The bride is the analogy of the church presented to Christ one day, sanctified in beauty and splendor. She's wearing a white robe, picturing the robe of Christ's righteousness. And right now, dear Christian, Jesus is preparing you and I for that day, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible began with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. It began with a husband, Adam, who failed his bride in Eden. It ends with a husband, the last Adam, Jesus, who never lets his bride down, who will glorify you, who loves you, who is bringing you to himself. Let us rejoice and praise him and give him thanks. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you that by your grace we are your people, that you are our God, and that one glorious day you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Help us to encourage each other in holiness. Help us as a church, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to love one another, to point each other to our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as we live as his bride, the church, as you conform us more into the image of our dear Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.